You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Scott. I want to add my welcome and say that I'm delighted that you are here. It's the summer months. A lot of things are going on uh, and opportunities abound for us to continue to gather together. And I want to say this as well. I don't know how you think you got to be in this room this morning, but we are absolutely confident and convinced that God and his sovereignty has divinely directed your steps to be here, which means in his sovereignty, in his goodness and glory and grace, he has decided and purposed that what happens in this room this morning will be for your good and for his glory. In other words, this is not any way, shape, or form just a, a happenstance or even a dink. This is for realsies, God wanting to speak to you by his spirit, through his word, among his people. And so I just want to set expectations accordingly. We are here to hear what God says. Every time we open God's word, it is us saying, Man, this is what God says. This is what God wants. And we have the opportunity to come to his word submissively, humbly, yieldedly, and ask that he would change us in the process. We know that the answer is already yes. So my thought this morning as I was preparing and praying is I wonder really and truly how you and how I, how do we really see the world? What is, what is the, the lens through which we look to view the world? What is our worldview? Now, the answer to that question really determines a lot about how you think and therefore how you live in the world. The text that Scott read and the Bibles that we study really do not spend an enormous amount of time trying to change our behavior. Our Bibles spend a lot more time trying to capture our heart's affections, our mind's attention, and impact and influence our thinking. How do we view the world? Have you ever really thought about how and why you see the world the way you do? Do you see it out of fear and uncertainty and doubt? And regardless of what news channel you happen to watch, does that stoke up your anxiety, your dread? Or do you view the world through these sort of rose-colored glasses? Everything is awesome. We all need to hug. How, how, how do you view the world? Somewhere in the middle. Why do you view the world the way you view the world? Have you ever stopped to think about what is the trajectory, what is the, the historicity of why I look at the world the way I do, why I think about the world the way I think about it when I do think about it? Now, there are all kinds of sayings in every society, every culture, every people group that try to help shape the way we see the world. Every society, every culture is trying to forge for its people a worldview. Now, we live in the 21st century in Western civilization. Our culture, our society, our community even is trying to forge and shape and direct and influence the way we see the world. Now, oftentimes that is mm, diametrically opposed to God's worldview. So what are some of these things? Well, 
sort of sarcastically, uh, famous writer Samuel Taylor Coleridge wrote this a long time ago. He said, common sense in an uncommon degree is what the world calls wisdom. That's what Coleridge said. I did some looking around. I wanted to see what are some of the, the truisms, the adages, maybe even the proverbs that, uh, that are effective and influential for us today. So I just got a, a list, non-exhaustive. I'm sure there's some other great ones, but just kind of walk with me on these. Number one, this is one of my dad's favorite ones he would tell me all the time. It goes like this. When you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. It's a good one. Next. Good judgment comes from experience, and a lot of experience comes from bad judgment. Been there. Mm -hmm. Next one. When you think you're becoming a big deal person of influence, just try telling someone else's dog what to do. You don't have a whole lot of chops. This is one of my dad's favorite ones. He said, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. Just let that one ruminate for a little bit. Another one. Never ask a barber if you need a haircut. Good call. The next one, a closed mouth gathers no feet. Mm -hmm. If you think you're leading, but nobody is with you, all you're doing is taking a walk, which is nice. Or my dad's all-time favorite, never miss an opportunity to shut up. He had several chances to use that one on me. All of these sayings are intended to be thought-provoking and understood in community, all of them. Why are these kinds of little sayings, adages, truisms, why are they necessary? And the reality is because every single one of us need proper perspective because we do not come into this world seeing it rightly. Let me just, let me just say that again, sort of, sort of uh, assertively. None of us, not a single one of us, comes into this world seeing it completely correctly. In fact, it reminds me of another saying, this one from the Bible, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Our default inclination and assumption, the way we come right out of the wrapper, how we come out of the box, the way that seems right to us leads to death. And so what we need is a worldview transfusion. We need something miraculous and mysterious and majestic to occur in our lives that we would begin to see the world the way God sees it. In fact, I would contend that is the definition of wisdom. Wisdom is seeing the world through God's eyes. Not seeing it through our default pattern, but wisdom is seeing the world through God's eyes. And by his grace, he has provided his spirit. He has provided his word. He has provided his people so that we can ever increasingly see the world the way he sees it. And when we do that, that will change our thinking. That will change our actions. So if you haven't already done this, I want to encourage you to go to the book of Proverbs. We will be in chapter 18. We are beginning a brand new sermon series for this summer that, Lord willing, will carry us all the way through this summer, right up to the beginning of the school year in September. I'm excited about it because there is something in this series for absolutely every single one of us. All of us could be benefited and blessed greatly if we grew in wisdom. Wisdom, the great treasure 
of the scriptures. There is no greater treasure in the scriptures save God himself. And so for these 12 weeks through the summer, we will be in a pursuit of wisdom. Lord willing, we'll spend four weeks in June through the book of Proverbs. In the book of July, we will spend four weeks looking at some of the Psalms. And then in August, we'll do a very specific look at sort of what we believe God is doing specifically in the life of Bethel Bible Church at all three campuses. All of this is to help us come to God's word humbly and ask that he would give us an increased capacity to see the world through his eyes. Now, Proverbs is a unique kind of literature. It's not one that we spend a lot of time on frequently in series at Bethel. It's very different from a lot of the books we typically preach through. We've just finished last weekend preaching through the book of Galatians. 20 weeks through the epistle from the Apostle Paul to the churches in Galatia. But Galatians is a specific type of literature. It is a letter written by a person to some people in a place for a purpose. And all of that information helps us to understand it's very linear, it's very logical. That's the book of Galatians. Proverbs, it doesn't work that way. Not even close. Several years ago, we preached through the book of Acts, A little later, we preached through the book of Judges. Now, these books are very different as well. These books are historical narratives. They tell a great, grand, sweeping saga of God's faithfulness, of his interaction with his people, and how he moves forward and gets it done. Historical narratives, 1 and 2 Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, Judges and Acts, and they tell a wonderful, long story. Then you've got books like Micah. We preached through Micah last fall. Micah is a prophetic book. Micah follows the template and the pattern of every other book of prophecy. The book of prophecies almost always go like this. There is God. He's great. He's awesome. And then there are his people, and he loves them, but they are absolutely jacked up. And they sin, and they rebel, and they turn from him. And so God has to pour out judgment, but he always provides a way of deliverance, and he provides for them a future hope. Every single one of the prophetic books follows that same pattern. But Proverbs is not like any of those kinds of literature. Proverbs is a book that contains general truth. It's really important that we get this as we study Proverbs over these next few weeks in June. Proverbs contains general truth. It is a book of principles. It is not a book of promises. Now, it's super huge that we get this. Otherwise, we'll read these little staccato, rapid-fire bursts of Scripture, and we'll somehow rip them out of context and think, well, God says this, if I do this, then he has to do this. No, Proverbs are principles, they are not promises. And it's very easy to get that wrong if we're not careful. Just let me give you an example. One of the most famous versions of this is Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, that says this. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. But all of you know, families were good godly parents trained up a child in the way he or she should have gone. And that child departed from it like they stole something. They just ran like a scalded ape, right? you, You know families like that. In fact, you may be the one who departed. I don't know. That is not a promise. It is a principle. This is one of the ways that we build into our children. Proverbs are principles, they're not promises. We've all seen areas where we know that to be true in Proverbs. So let me just allow Solomon, the writer of most of the Proverbs, for him to explain 
what the book of Proverbs is all about. That'll sort of give us some backstory uh, and a canvas onto which we'll paint the picture of the rest of our time this morning. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. This is Solomon giving his sort of mission for this writing. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, the wisest man who ever lived. And yet that brother married a thousand chicks. That's a bad, bad idea. So even the wisest dude ever said I do like a thousand times. Now look, we've all got room to grow, okay? Even Solomon. So we've we got to concede that. But this is what he says. Son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction. This is why I'm writing this, Solomon says, that you would know wisdom and instruction. His prayer and his plea for his people is that they would know and grow in wisdom. What a noble desire for them. To understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. Now here again, you don't have to look very far from channel to channel to see that those are some qualities that are significantly deficient in our time and world today. We can all use some more of things like righteousness, justice, and equity to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Well, what does that mean? It means that youth don't come out of the wrapper with knowledge and discretion. Can I get an amen? Yes. They have to be reared, taught, coached, and corrected. This is why Solomon is writing this. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. You're wise, good for you. There's more to go. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so I hope that all of us, anyone within the sound of my voice, will be like the wise person. Or perhaps the young person. But all of us will recognize humbly that we have room to grow and to go and that all of us believe something incomplete or even wrong about our God. But there's grace and we get to come and learn wisdom that impacts our thinking, that impacts our behavior. I hope none of us will be like the fool who says, yeah, 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 I got it, whatever. I've heard all this before, I already know. So Solomon, writing so that his people will grow in wisdom, and the Proverbs are absolutely full of all these different issues and challenges and topics. We've got things in there like uh, relationships and personal interactions. How do you treat a friend relationship? How do you treat a neighbor? Proverbs has got some very specific practical uh, advice for how we deal with money and finances, how we steward the resources that God has given us. There's a lot of information in Proverbs about how to deal with sexual relations and physical intimacy, spiritual relations between people. There's a lot of information about marriage and family and parenting. There's a lot of information in the Proverbs about character traits and emotions, things like laziness or anger and apathy and lust and greed and fear. A lot of those things are covered. But there is a topic in the book of Proverbs that he deals with more than any other topic by far. 
There are 915 verses in the book of Proverbs. 31 chapters, 915 verses, and 150 of those verses deal with words. The words that we speak. One in six of the verses in Proverbs deal with words. That's huge. Apparently, our words matter. Now, I say this all the time. I want to say it again. Our Bibles read us more than we read them. They are the owner's manual, the instructions of who we are, what we're like, and what we need. And apparently, Solomon, the wisest dude ever, understood that a sixth of what he writes has to do, has to do with the words that we speak. It is a huge, huge implication for us. Now, why is it such a big deal? Well, it has been estimated by certain studies here and there, and I don't have all the clinical research. I was not a part of it. But it has been estimated that the average human being will speak 700 times a day. <laughs> I'm not saying 700 words. I'm saying it is estimated that the average person will speak 700 times a day. Now, I know some of you. For some of you, that's like mm, maybe 100 times too many. Like you speak seven times if you, there's a gun to your head. That's it. That's all you're going to do. Which must mean there are people like me who swing the pendulum all the way over. And I'm like seven, a hundred times. No, that's before sunrise. I got that licked. I got a lot to say to you people, okay? So maybe 700 is not the right number for you. I don't know. Maybe it's too high. Maybe it's too low. I had someone tell me between services, I don't speak 700 times. I maybe speak 100 times. I just never have any breaks between those 100 times. Okay, now we're getting closer. But let's say that 700 times is too many times for you. You don't speak 700 times a day. Maybe you just speak half that, 350 times. Let's just say for the sake of conservative simplicity, you speak 350 times a day. What else in your daily regimen and routine do you do 350 times a day? You don't brush your teeth that often. Hopefully you're not eating Doritos that often. What is it that you do besides breathe and have a pulse, neither of which you really control? What else do you do that happens 350 times a day? Speaking is a huge portion of our lives. And Jesus seemed to know this as well. It's not just in the Proverbs, but a thousand years later, Jesus himself comes on the scene, and he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he says this in Matthew 12, verses 33 to 37. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. There you go, Jesus, making friends and influencing people. Not so kind in that context. But how can you speak good when you are evil? It's a great question. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The new Eric translation of that is, what's in the well comes up in the bucket. You see, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, this is sobering, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Oh, you better pray you're not behind me in line. That's going to be a long day, all right? If I'm having to answer for every careless word, whoo! For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Our words are an out loud manifestation of our thinking. 
And I say this, I think, in every sermon series I've ever preached at Bethel and before, our thinking matters immensely and intensely to God. Our thoughts have spiritual weight and mass. Therefore, how much more do our words matter? Because it is as if our words are what happens when our thinking splashes and splatters onto somebody else. Words are simply our thoughts getting on other people. So words matter. We spend the first 18 to 24 months of a child's life trying to get them to speak and the next several decades trying to shut them up. So what we say and why we say what we say matters immensely. All of that finally now brings us to Proverbs 18. And again, let me read this. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 20. Solomon writes this, From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. You might have in your translation sated or filled. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of, his, of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. It's interesting. This is a classic form of, of what we call Hebrew parallel, parallelism. It's two verses. It's really four little clauses. And they all sort of build together and complement one another. The very first word in the Hebrew and the very last word in the Hebrew is fruit, which in Hebrew poetry tells you this little four-clause stanza is all about fruit. It's all about produce. The word in Hebrew is peri. It has the idea of produce. Solomon is using an agricultural metaphor because everybody in that day reading this would have understood the agricultural implications. For millennia, people have understood agricultural illustrations. We don't so much anymore today, but a thousand years after Solomon, Jesus uses the same idea of fruit. Everybody in that day and age understood that fruit always is a product of the root. The, the root is what it is, and that determines what the fruit is. A fig tree has never, ever once, not ever, ever produced a pomegranate. Never. A cherry tree has never, in the history of cherry trees, ever once, not ever, produced a lemon. Ever. They produce cherries. The fruit is determined by the root. And Solomon says something really interesting. In fact, we read through verses 20 and 21 pretty quickly, and it might not land and it might not lodge, but I think Solomon intends for it to. He says something really fascinating. It's a bit perplexing, maybe even backwards. He says that the fruit of a man's mouth is what satisfies his stomach. Now, stomach there, or belly, is the idea of his entire person. But what is it that fills a man? It's not what he takes in, it's what goes out. That's interesting. What fills a person, what sates a person, what satisfies a person is not what he eats, it's what goes out of him. So it's a wonderful Hebrew parallelism where he's just going to continue to build on his line. The first line talks about fruit. The second line, he changes and uses grain in a field. But they're making the same point. What comes out of our face is more satisfying than what goes in. In other words, whatever or however we use our words to try and impact and influence other people, we can be certain that our words are impacting and influencing us. Whenever you're speaking to someone else, 
Solomon is saying that is having a boomerang effect on you. As you're trying to impact and influence other people, it's actually filling you. Now, the word satisfies, again, could be sated or filled. It could be for good or it could be for bad. If you're saying things that are not positive, that are not constructive, then you will be filled with ill, with bad, with evil, with wickedness, with not goodness. Or if you're using positive, constructive words, the words that you speak spiritually are the things that fill you up. That's fascinating. Words matter. The implication is that whatever we deliver to others in terms of words will end up coming back to us. There is always a social and relational component to wisdom. It's never, ever, only ever about me. It is always, always about us. It is always about us. How do my words bless you? Those are the same words that will fill me up. Well, he continues in verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. This verse is just a continuation of the first verse. These two little, these two little clauses. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. It's a strange expression. He says death and life are in the hand of the tongue. That's kind of creepy. You do not actually have a hand on your tongue, I hope. It just has to do with the strength and the force of the tongue. And it is powerful for life and death. Now, in the Old Testament, life and death are always reserved for God's word. In Genesis 1, he spoke into being that which did not previously exist. And his word is judgment. So I don't think that what Solomon is saying here is, you and I have the power with our mouths, with our words, to bring people into existence from nothingness or to slay them where they stand. It isn't that. It's a little bit more scary. Life and death has to deal with community, with relationships, with us, with society, with culture. We have the power to disintegrate community by the things that we say, by the things that we do. You've heard this other adage. It goes like this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me, which Solomon would argue is a lie from the pit of hell. That they do hurt, they do harm. They have the power to unravel and disintegrate the fabric of human community and societal life. When words are used to harm, the entire system breaks down. And that's what destroys people groups. It is life and death. And then he says this strange little expression at the end. Those who love it will eat of its fruits. Those who love what? Uh, those who love the tongue. That's also very creepy. Those who love what he's talking about here, those who love it, those who understand and really love words, those who love language, those who understand the power of language, of artfully and fastidiously and precisely crafting words to convey a message, they will reap the benefit themselves of pausing, of considering, and fashioning words that adequately and accurately convey a message. We are to love language. We are to consider the words that we say. Does that mean that everything, everything we say and speak and write has to be in the, the excellence of Robert Frost or Emily Dickinson or C.S. Lewis? No, of course not, and that's not realistic anyway. But it's also interesting that when Solomon says those who love language and use it artfully, fastidiously, precisely, 
will build up culture in society when we are now characterized as a society as not being able to say anything longer than 140 characters. That's kind of interesting. When we as a society, we max out our conversation in 140 characters or in a rapid-fire Snapchat in which you put a little filter of a doggy face on my picture. That's the height of societal conversation. Is it any wonder that society has a tendency to disintegrate and to devolve? We are to be cognizant that we are most like our maker when we use words for life and blessing and building and bolstering. We are most like our enemy when we use them to tear down and to destroy. We want to be those kinds of people who aren't characterized by rushing to failure when we speak. There's no kind of regret, (laughs) and I know this, there's no kind of regret like having to rehash what you've said and wishing it had never tumbled out of your mouth. Every now and then, my wife will walk through the house and say, what is, what is that sound? What is, what is that? You're making a noise. And it's usually me going, because I'm rehashing something that I said to a staff member, something that I said in an elder meeting, something that I said on a phone call, some email that I sent, some text, some whatever, and just, and I just groan all over the place. Now, here's the nice side benefit, is that it puts me in a perpetual, like, ab crunch. So that's like my resistance training, my exercise, is that I just groan in, in verbal regret all the time. But I'm a heart patient, so I don't, regret, I don't recommend that for you, okay? It's better to actually weigh and measure your words before you say them and not have to deal with regret. Our words matter. In the pursuit of wisdom, it seems like the lion's share of Solomon's concern for his people is their usage of words. And so I want to give you two very quick applications about words. Number one is this, very easy, very quick. Use your words. Some of you who are parents in the room, you may or may not remember the season when you were trying to get your children to communicate like something slightly above the lowest rung of the animal kingdom. And they wanted something, and they would thrash about and flail and kick and scream and wave their arms, and you would try to calmly coach them and say, now, use your words. And they would then throw the bowl of Cheerios at your face. And you would say, no, we're going to use our words. It's fascinating to me that Solomon is a great parent. He's trying to convey to his people and thereby extension us, to use our words. The idea is to stop and to think and to carefully communicate what we're trying to convey. Be aware that our words have a meaning and a mass to them. They reflect the condition of our heart, of our soul, of our mind. Use your words to build and to bless. I was thinking about this this week, and I thought about the area, the sphere of husbands and wives, of spouses. Are the words that you speak to one another building one another up or tearing one another down? Our passage today says that whatever words you are using to wound your spouse out of insecurity or fear or uncertainty or doubt, they are landing and they are wounding. I had a mentor tell me many, many years ago, he said, Eric, what if your wife was solely defined by the words that you speak to her? And I thought, man, she'd be about that tall. That's no good. What are the words that we, in the flesh, instinctively react to speak at our our spouses, the ones with whom we are in covenant? 
Just a quick little tip on this, husbands and wives. One of the ways you can use words or you can tweak the way in which you communicate is mutually agree to eradicate and eliminate using the words ever, or never and always. Just get them out of your vocabulary. They're out of your lexicon. When you find yourself saying things to your husband, to your wife, you always such and such. You never X, Y, and Z. Those are hurtful words that are extremes and they are not blessing. So remove them from, from your vocabulary. There are some things that both of you know that you could say that you must not. Choose your words. Use your words wisely. Parents, are the words that you speak breathing life into your kids? Or are you consistently conveying disappointment and disapproval? Remember, these little people that are walking around, one day they will choose your nursing home. So choose and use your words. Are you using your words to, to instill love and affection and confidence? Are you using your words to hold the crown high above their head that God himself in his sovereignty built them, designed them in his own image and for a very small season entrusted them to us to steward them, to raise them up to fit that crown? Or are we simply conveying consistently the inconvenience of their existence. These words matter. What about in your friend relationships, socially, to your neighbors, to your coworkers? Are the words that you speak to one another edifying and positive, or are they merely flippant and surface? Look, I know encouraging words are like sermons. You forget them by the time you get to Luby's. I know that. It's okay. I get it. I can ask you, most of you, what's the last 10 sermons that you've heard? And you'd be like, yeah, there is that one with the, with the words? I don't know. When's the last 10 encouraging things that someone said to you? Oh, yeah, this one time someone said that I was, you know, uh, I don't remember. But the things that landed, that lodged, that were hurtful and harmful, you probably carry with you for the rest of your life. Our words matter. So choose your words. Now that's just in the area of spouses and kids or maybe how you treat your parents or your friend relationships, coworkers, neighbors, community members, whatever. And the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, can bring to mind a whole lot of other contexts and spheres of relationality. Which brings me to my second point. Choose your words. First, we are to use our words intentionally, but secondly, choose your words. Now, this is interesting. James chapter 3, verse 8 says this. James 3, 8 says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. The book of James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's the oldest book in the New Testament written by Jesus' half-brother. And so I find it interesting that James devotes so much time and attention to the power of words. And what James is telling us is that no human being None of us, not a single one of us, can adequately control our words perfectly all the time. It is a human impossibility. And so, by God's grace, God also gives us his spirit to indwell us, to guide us and lead us into wisdom. We have the presence of God himself within us. And so when we are deliberately, intentionally, volitionally yielded to him, submitted to him, aware of his leadership in our lives... Our words are weighable. 
but only because of the power and the presence of the Spirit. I literally have this visual in my mind as I'm talking to people. And maybe it's goofy and not helpful for you, but it certainly is for me. As I'm about to type an email or a text or have a conversation with someone that's hard, I have this image of the advocate, the helper, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, as I'm about to speak, leans over, puts his hand over the microphone and goes, "Mm -mm, don't do it, dude. Abort, abort, abort. Don't say it, don't say it. And if I am completely walking by the flesh and not on the spirit, I slap his hand away and I say it anyway. (laughs) That's right, I got that out. And then watch as the scar tissue piles up. When I'm praying, it's the same idea. The Holy Spirit, the advocate, the counselor, the helper, he puts his hand over the microphone and he goes, whoa, Father, no, he didn't mean that either. He ain't the sharpest knife in the drawer. Here's what he means. I'll take it from here. I'll pray in words you don't even understand. We are indwelled by God's Holy Spirit. And as we are yielded and submitted to God's Holy Spirit, we find that our words come out with sweetness like honey. So choose your words. Now, this is a filter that uh, is helpful. It's not, it's not inspired. It's not original to me. But I hope that this would be helpful so that all of us begin to grow into the kinds of people that essentially, on the fly, we can use this sort of three-fold test for our words as we're speaking to one another. The first question that we want to ask about what we're about to speak is this. Is it true? You'd be surprised how many things we don't have to say if we simply start there. Is what I'm tempted to say, is what I feel like I have to say, is what I want to say, is it true? Many people possess a keen sense of rumor. (laughs) And much of what they say is not really true or accurate. Can you imagine how much gossip would die in its tracks if we simply asked whether it's true? If you make it past that, Ask another question. Is it true? And then, is it necessary? Does this need to be said? Many times we fail, if I can quote the Apostle Peter, we fail to cover a multitude of sins by repeating things about other people that are not really necessary to tell. Oh, they might be true. But are they necessary to tell? Perhaps a matter might be true, but is there any use in repeating it just to fill the silence and to make idle chatter? I admit it. My staff knows this. My family knows this. I would rather eat a light bulb than sit in silence. Drives me insane. I don't have something to say. I just have to say something. But is it true? Maybe. Is it necessary? Probably not. Oh, boy. And then the third test, is it true? Is it necessary? Then finally, is it kind? Some of you are going, dude, if I answer those questions, I'm never going to say anything. Okay. Let's start there. Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? How do the words that I am about to speak fit with the second greatest commandment? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Is this kind? And what I want this spoken back to me. Now, sometimes I get it. The wounds of a friend are precious. Yes, of course. But we want to be a people who are characterized by using words the way God uses them. We can do that because, as Matt mentioned when we began this morning, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's interesting. We really don't have much of what Jesus spoke in his teachings during his earthly ministry. Three-plus years of earthly ministry, we have a lot written down, but there's so much more that we don't have. The Apostle John says, I could fill the sky with ink 
telling you everything else that he did and said. And part of me says, well, then why didn't you? That would have been helpful. But apparently God in his sovereignty gave us precisely the words that we need from Jesus. And Jesus, what he spoke, are the very words of God because he is God. He spoke life. He spoke truth. He spoke of his willingness to die for the sin of another. He spoke of the bread of life which produces eternal life. Now, one of the things we do here at Bethel is the first Sunday of every month, we observe communion together. Why don't we do it every Sunday? Why don't we do it every year? I, I don't know. Ask the elders. No, not really. It's just because this is how we've done it. This is how we've done our expression. The first Sunday of the month, we observe communion together. And we will take something into our bodies to remind us of something that somebody else has done. And because of what that somebody else has done, we are now indwelled by his Holy Spirit so that what comes out of us now, our words, are, that, are those things that fill us, that satisfy us, that sate us, and that build and bolster other people. Only made possible because of the finished work of Jesus. What we take into us is a commemoration now of what goes out from us. This is why we always do communion in community. We have received grace, and now we dispense grace. Listen, every time we open our mouths, it is an opportunity to dispense grace. This is wisdom. So may we see the world through his eyes and think his thoughts after him and speak the words of life to one another. Every now and then when we do communion, we will sit where we are and we will pass the elements up and down the rows. And those who receive grace, give grace. This morning, we're going to do it a little bit differently. Here in just a moment, I'm going to pray for us. And when I'm done praying, I'm going to essentially dismiss you. And as families or people in the same row or life groups or people who are now complete strangers but are about to get to do this wonderful thing together... If you see someone that you don't know that's not sitting with anybody else, man, you put your hand on their shoulder and say, hey, let's take communion together. But if there's anything between you and the Lord, we're going to ask you to not observe communion this morning. If there's anything between you and anybody else, your spouse, your parents, your kids, your neighbors, your friends, whomever, man, pause and take this opportunity to throw that and hurl that at the foot of the cross. Keep short accounts so that you will be free to be in right relationship, to speak the words of life, yielded to God's Holy Spirit. The way we'll do it is, I'll pray, and when we're done, you right where you are, when you're ready, we have three communion stations at the back of the room. Go as a family, go as a, a row, a group, a whole section, whatever. Pray. Take the time to pray together, thanking God for who he is and what he has done, and therefore who we are, and asking that we ourselves would be the dispensers of grace moving forward. You do not have to be a member of Bethel Bible Church to take part in communion. We just ask that you would be a believer. And if you're not a believer, well, I invite you to believe. To believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God that he lived a perfect life, fulfilling the demands of the law, that he paid the wages of sin, that is death, so that I would never have to try to fulfill the law nor experience the judgment of God. And he offers this exchange freely. God offers to treat Jesus like I deserve and treat me like Jesus deserves, and it is a scandal of grace. For the rest of us, perhaps you are a believer, and you have forgotten the power and the creative force of your words. May Proverbs 18 encourage us all over again to be diligent in how we speak to one another. 
I'm going to pray for us, and when I'm done, if you'll just go to one of these three communion stations as a family, as a group of friends, whatever, and then after you're done taking communion, you will be dismissed to walk out of the room in silence so that those who remain can take communion together. Please join me in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you sent your son. We thank you that you've sent your spirit, and now that you send us. And you don't just send us, Father, as mindless robots, but you send us with the capacity to use our words and to choose our words. So may we do that. Father, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, I pray that you will move irresistibly by your spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus. That you would snatch them out of death into life, out of darkness into light. That they would become people who speak words of meaning, of matter, of value, of significance, and life. And for the rest of us, Father, who already know this, we have heard this, would you challenge us and charge us all over again to be those people who speak constructive, edifying words of life as we are continually built into your household in this age. Father, you have told us in your word, through the words of Jesus, that the Israelites ate manna that fell from heaven, and yet they died. But whoever eats of the bread of life shall never perish, but have everlasting life. You've told us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And your son accomplished both in his act of obedience and his death on the cross. So, Father, we pray for right relationship, for a removal of any hindrance from us experiencing communion with you and with one another. Would you be honored and glorified? Would you do a work in us as we observe communion, the Lord's Supper? You have told us to proclaim the Lord's death until his return. Well, he's not back yet. So may we be a people who speak words of life until he returns. God, we love you. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.